talking about the real Jesus. Isaac Wimberly wrote, His grace is remarkable, His mercies innumerable, His strength impenetrable. He is most honorable, accountable and favorable. He is unsearchable, yet knowable. Indefinable, yet approachable. Indescribable, yet personal. He is beyond comprehension, further than imagination, constant through generations, king of kings of every nation. If there are words for him, I don't have them. My words are few in trying to capture this God, our Savior, who is both worthy and deserving of our praise. My heart extols the Lord and blesses his name forever. For he has won my heart and captured my mind, binding them both together. He's defeated me in my rebellion, conquered me in my sin, welcomed me into his presence, completely inviting me in. He has made himself the object of my affection, flooding me with mercies in the morning, drowning me with grace every night. If there are words for him, I don't have them. But what I do have is good news. The gospel, real good news. Because man-made words would never do. It's a story for me and you that point us to the ultimate truth. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, giving nothingness his formation. And by his word he sustains in the power of his name. He is before all things and over all things, and he still reigns. Holy is his name. Praise him, for his life is the way, the truth, and the resurrection. He persevered in strife, the humble son of God, becoming the perfect sacrifice. Praise him for his death. Praise him for his burial. Praise him for his resurrection. Praise him for his ascension. Praise him for his return. He lovingly endured the grave. He battled our enemy and on the third day rose in victory. He is everything that was promised. Praise him as the risen king. Our savior for eternity. Hope has a name. Joy has a name. Peace has a name. Love has a name. And that name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christo, Yeshua HaMashiach. Can I hear a shout? Amen. We're learning great things about Jesus from the book of Hebrews, going through this passage by passage. We don't tear every verse to shreds because I'm not sure that's the point of the writer. You can do it with the Word of God and get a lot out of it. These letters were written to be read to a church in an evening or during meetings in the original language. That's how they were used. And I think sometimes in disobedience, we want to substitute obedience application with study. Get down to all the minutiae. It's beautiful. It's awesome. But are we applying the word? Francis Chan puts it like this. If you told a child to clean your room and you come back the next day and check it and it hadn't been cleaned, had the child obeyed you? No. You remind the child, clean your room. And you give the child a few more days before you check and it hadn't been cleaned. And the child says, you don't understand. I have formed a study group. We're going to get together every week and study the meaning of the word clean. Maybe come up with an acrostic is what the word clean means. And then your and what it means to have a room and how big is a room and then maybe study whether or not you have authority. Has that child cleaned their room? Is that child being rebellious? We can do that with the Bible and appear to be wise and appear to be religious, but are we applying the Word of God is the question. I think there's no application better than learning who Jesus is as reflected in the text, which is what we're doing with this amazing book called Hebrews. It was written to Hebrew Christians, Jews scattered across the Roman Empire, for their encouragement to continue in the new covenant that had been given to them and spread to the Gentile world. It's normal Christianity. It's amazing. Maybe not normal in our day, but in their day, it was. Yet there was a temptation to go back. Who knows, old wineskins resist new wine, right? 
And there's nothing like the good old days to remember how good it was back then. And I've got a book called The Good Old Days Weren't Always So Good. Did you know back in the good old days, swine ran free on the streets of New York City? And that Long Island... <laughs> Long Island was a dump. <laughs> it's much better physically than what it was, maybe not spiritually. All right, I better, I better get back to the Word. <laughs> Lest I too be a rebellious child. All right. Looking at the last verse of Hebrews 8 to kind of build from when we preached two weeks ago prior to Resurrection Day. You know today is Orthodox Resurrection Day? Christ is risen! All right. You weren't ready. Now you're ready. Christ is risen! Amen. That's appropriate for every Sunday. Amen. So we're breaking into this conversation that I believe probably was a sermon delivered publicly in that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, what is he talking about? Well, in verse 8 through 12 of Hebrews 8, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, which is a prophecy, and this is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this is a covenant made with the Hebrews, a promise made to be kept to the Jews, to the readers of this book. I will make a new covenant. So what is that new covenant? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In an effort to fulfill this, People have, have got miniature copies of the law of Moses, put it in pouches, and bind it on their arms and on their foreheads in an effort to get the law into their minds and in their hearts. But this wasn't a command to be obeyed. This is a promise that God would do this in this new covenant. He would put his will, his written will, in our hearts and in our minds. Anybody here growing spiritually? God is writing his word in your heart. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this is, as was conveyed earlier, a better covenant than the first covenant. When this new covenant comes, the first covenant became the old covenant, the first covenant. Not to be disrespectful, it's a perfect covenant, but it just exposes man's faults. It's a fault-finding covenant. Who's, there, who's ever had an x-ray? Why would you just have one but to see if you've been injured, right? Did it fix your injury? No. That's what the law of Moses did. It didn't fix our injury, didn't fix our sinfulness, but it exposed it, challenged us to the need to have our sins dealt with. So we're living in the time of the new covenant. So let's go back and read our text in light of that promise that Jeremiah gave and that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In the Talmud, which is Jewish literature, I learned this recently. There's four things that began to happen with regularity up until the time of the destruction of the temple. And these things happen over the course of 40 years. So 70, 80, these phenomena stopped because the temple was destroyed. But for 40 years, they happened. Back up. What happened 
40 years previous to the destruction of the temple. The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. What were these four things? Well, two of them had to do with Yom Kippur. There were annual events, the Day of Atonement, the big day when the priest would offer a sacrifice for his own sins, then a sacrifice for the people, and a scapegoat would be led out in the wilderness to die alone as a representation of the sins of the people being dealt with. There was a scarlet cord tied on the door of the temple, and that scarlet cord would turn white, illustrating the promise, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. This happened every year if their sacrifices were done and accepted by God. But for 40 years in a row, according to the Jewish Talmud, the rabbis all know this is there, that scarlet cord never turned white. Also for 40 years, the Day of Atonement, as a second witness to their sins being atoned for, their sacrifices being accepted on that special day, Yom Kippur, the priest would put his hands in a bag, a container of some sort, where there were two stones. And if the right stone wound up in their right hand, they knew their sacrifice was accepted. Once a year, for 40 years in a row, the high priest on duty would reach his hands into the container, put the two stones in his hands, pull them out, and to their dismay, they were in the wrong hands. The acceptance stone was in the left hand, not in the right hand, for 40 years. Also, for 40 years, they would lock up the temple every night, and every morning, this was a daily occurrence, every morning the temple doors would be open. They had cell phones, I could see the texting going on. Hey, didn't you lock up the temple last night? Yes, I did. Well, they're open again. Not just unlocked, but open. Daily occurrence for 40 years. Check it out. You can dig into it and ver verify this. Also, something went wrong with the center lamp on the seven-branch menorah. They couldn't keep that middle lamp lit. What is going on? Verse 13 of Hebrews 8 is happening. A new covenant. He's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. A new covenant. A better covenant has come. So what happened prior to those events happening? The death of Christ as the perfect sacrifice. The resurrection of Christ as the great high priest. The presentation of his resurrected self at the altar in heaven. And his administration of the mediator of the better covenant for you and I. Isn't this awesome? All right, chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. This is called the, can we say tabernacle? The sanctuary had the lampstand and the table of showbread. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So in this holiest of all, the holy of holies, this cubicle, as it were, is cube shape, approximately 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet, was the Ark of the Covenant, a box covered in gold that contained a golden pot of manna. This is like the archives of Israel. Aaron's rod that budded. Manna was what they were fed in the wilderness as they escaped Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. It sustained them in their time, their years of need. To so remember that, reminder of that. Aaron's rod was bu that budded was proof that Aaron had been given the authority to be the high priest and the father of the family 
that would generate high priests for centuries to come and the Ten Commandments that Moses and God on the mountain that came out of that experience. So in this box were that. Above the box was a golden plate called the mercy seat. Out of beaten gold were two angels, cherubim. Cherub is singular. Cherubim is plural. So to say cherubims is not proper. Kind of like kalachi. Kalachi is singular. Kalachi is plural. To say kalachis, any checks in the house? Check on that. All right. Sorry. Sorry, I apologize, John. <laughs> so above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So because he's not going to speak of it in detail, I'm not going to speak of it in detail. But he did bring it up, so we have to deal with it somewhat. All right? So this is an artist's rendition of what it looked like. It was an outer court and an inner court or a sanctuary and then the holiest of all. Uh, that tent in the middle was 45 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet high. And the first, per, the first area was 30 feet by 15 by 15. And then the last area was the cube, 15 by 15 by 15. So when Moses made this, it was incredibly... If you, who's tried to read the Bible? You probably stop somewhere in Exodus when you hit the tabernacle. The tediousness of the detail is like incredible. But it's not architect drawings, it's verbally laid out. Why was God so meticulous? Because it was a shadow of heavenly things. So God wanted to reflect the order of heaven in the order of this place. How does man approach an all-holy God? For us in the New Covenant, we don't quite understand the price that was paid. I mean, God is so awesome, you approach Him with sin, you're dead. Dead meat. He's a consuming fire. But through the sacrifice made by the gift of His Son, through the covenant, God remains righteous and can allow us to enjoy His presence. Isn't that awesome? So this was him revealing his will to man, extending his arm, as it were, to mankind, building this ladder of relationship. This wasn't just for Israel. They were to become a nation of priests to the world. It never happened. But it was a beautiful thing. So here's a 3D tour of the tabernacle structure. ends with a sentence of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm not going to go into the detail, but there's so many details in this that preach it's amazing. Maybe one day we'll have one of these touring tabernacles come 
and erect their setup here for several weeks and allow it to be accessible to other churches in town so we can be better educated in redemptive history. So it's an outer court and an inner court and the Holy of Holies. The outer court was entered by the gate. The inner court was entered by the door or the first veil. And the inner, inner court was entered through the veil or the second veil. You had the brazen altar where animals of sacrifice. Who enjoys barbecue? That smell was in the air all the time. So the sacrifices were offered in place of the people for their sins, and the blood was taken and applied to all the instruments of worship in this thing. There was the laver of water where the priest would wash, so there's a mixing of water in the blood, and then he would enter and minister to the Lord in the holy place. On your right, entering that door, was a table of showbread. Twelve loaves of showbread, unleavened bread, were there for the priest to partake of, but they were fresh loaves were put there every Shabbat. On the left was the golden candlestick or the menorah, seven branches, hollow beaten gold. You talk about worth some money if they could find this. It, it, it's worth millions. You'd fill it with olive oil, it was hollow, and the flames were tended to by the priest. And then in front of the veil was the golden altar of incense. Now our text today doesn't mention that, but it says a censer was behind the veil. So the best I can understand, either the incense was so much a part of this that it was the one thing in that room that got past the veil. The light from the candlestick was the only light in the holy place whereby the priest could see. But in the Holy of Holies, the only light in there was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat. So the priest would minister here daily. But once a year, he would offer a sacrifice for himself and then take two goats, perfect goats, sacrifice one for the sins of the people, and run one off, haul it out in the wilderness to die alone, and take blood from that goat and apply it to everything, and then take the blood past the veil into the Holy of Holies to be applied to the mercy seat. And if acceptable, he didn't die. <laughs> so it's believed they kept a rope around his feet. On the hem of his garment were pomegranates and bells. I think the instructions say a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. So if you heard the bell stop tinkling or heard a sudden crash of tinkling, you knew something was wrong. Nobody dared go back in there with the Ark of the Covenant. Who's seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, it's, that's obviously fiction, but it's based on the stories from this thing. Now, they use this thing in their, in their history as a good luck talisman and lost it for years, but through the ministry of David, they got it back. And so the whole lot of wonderful things here. But during the time of Christ, the Ark of the Covenant was gone. It had disappeared. And nobody to this day knows where it is. I mean, some people, you may be in this room, you know where it is. Well, maybe. But it's part of the old covenant. So if they found it, I think you could touch it. Nothing would happen to you. But I'll let you go first. <laughs> so when Christ died, the veil in the temple, they, they operated as though the ark was in there, even though it wasn't. When Christ died, the veil in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. Now, this was in the temple, not in the tabernacle. The temple was made dimensionally like the tabernacle, just bigger, right? So the veil's way high. No man can reach that high. Ripped, possibly four inches of fabric, ripped from the top to the bottom to reveal the empty room, <laughs> The old covenant was drawing to a close. Now, this veil was called by some the tunic of God. And they would change it every couple years and honor it. So when a loved one died, it was an expression of grief to rip your tunic. And in the painful experience of the cross between the father and the son, possibly 
It was an expression of God's grief for our sin. So that's the tabernacle. All right, rest of our passage for the day. Verse 6. Now when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went in the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services in the first part, the meeting place, the, the holy place. But unto the second part, the high priest went in alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So Christ made the way for us to approach the holy throne of God. We can come boldly to the throne of grace in our time of need without fear. No one has to tie a rope around our foot. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The guilt, who's ever experienced guilt for sin? The old covenant did not deal with your guilt. It dealt with your sin by simply covering it over. But it was like an interest-only loan. A payment had to be made every year. So today they no longer do that. So Yom Kippur, uh, faithful Jews to the old covenant to the best of their ability, try to make sure their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. That's why around Yom Kippur, uh, some do a lot of good deeds. There's no dealing with the guilt, but the new covenant promises to do that. So back to verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and the sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concern only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. And Christ brought the time of reformation. I'd like to speak to you this morning for the next few minutes on the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Can we say that together? That title came for the next verse, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. Not the one in the old temple, but the one in heaven. Having obtained eternal redemption, not an annual payment, but eternal payment, permanently, Paid in full. It is finished. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, red or otherwise, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. So if you were deemed pure by these things, temporary as it were, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he's a mediator of the new covenant, which by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So the death of Christ not only paid for the sins that occurred after him, but the ones prior to him. So through the ministry of the tabernacle, God was building track that would lead to the death of his son, as unjust as it was, to pay for all that faithful activity of sincere people who wanted a relationship with God. Permanent. Now you no longer have to go through a priest to go to God. Because our priest is God, the Son of God. God manifested the flesh, resurrected and reigning at the right hand of the throne on high. Isn't that awesome? 
the greater and more perfect tabernacle. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So before the foundation of the world, Christ was a lamb slain. The plan was made. Can I get a truly, truly? The greater and more perfect tabernacle is served by our great high priest. Hebrews 4, we learn we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. We can come to him boldly without fear, without rituals and without complications. Just come as you are, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. The greater and more perfect tabernacle operates by a better covenant, assured by Jesus. Chapter 722 said he'd become a surety of a better covenant. He guarantees it. Not only by cutting it in his own flesh, but resurrecting from the dead to make sure we reap the full benefits of his sacrifice. The greater and more perfect tabernacle points us to the true tabernacle in the heavens. We'll come back to that, but let's look at this. Chapter 8, we saw this last time. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. We're talking about heavenly things. Heaven's not about you going drinking with your friends and saying, how's it going on to the old man upstairs? That is fiction, folks. We have an almighty God, an incredible creator, who made a way for us to have an eternal relationship to him. Doesn't mean we're going to be sitting on clouds playing golden harps. We will be busy, but we will be learning some stuff and seeing how the earthly experience prepared us for that. The greater and more perfect tabernacle discontinued old practices that did not help us inwardly. It was symbolic. We read this a while ago. For the present time, talking about the old tabernacle, in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him perform the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Thank God Jesus brought that time. But it couldn't cure the conscience. If you were guilty, it's just stuck on you. No wonder Saul was so tormented. David got a taste of the new covenant. <laughs> that man should have been toast. God showed him mercy. And when he erected the tabernacle with just the ark in it and praise and worship 24-7 around it on Mount Zion, he, he had a prophetic picture going on of what the new covenant was about. The greater and more perfect tabernacle involves eternal redemption rather than annual atonement. Atonement is a covering. Jesus did not atone your sins. He expiated them. He erased them. He dealt with them. He removed them from us as far as the east is from the west, not the north from the south. That's 12,500 miles, isn't it? Every 24 hours, the earth rotates. If you stand above the equator, the surface of the earth, if you're motionless, the surface of the earth is rolling past you 1,000 miles an hour. You can go east and never stop. When Christ took our sins from us, they ain't coming back. The enemy tries to bring them back. That's the purpose of the accuser, I guess. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, in the Gospels is a strange passage of Mary Magdalene's encounter with him where he wouldn't let her touch him. He said, I've not yet ascended to my Father, to my God and your God. And yet later he appears and he says, touch my hands, touch my side. 
The only way I can understand that was he was resurrected and it was time to go present himself as a perfect sacrifice before the throne of God. And then to come back and give proofs of his resurrection over the period of 40 days. Eternal redemption, not annual atonement. Isn't that awesome? Redemption trumps atonement. The greater and more perfect tabernacle relates to Christ's blood that does much more for us than the blood of bulls and goats. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Some of us, we were so burdened with guilt for the crimes we had done, the stuff we had been caught doing and the stuff that nobody knows about. And Jesus took the burden away. Much more than what the blood of bulls and goats could do. There was power in those and that your sins were atoned. It purified your flesh for now. How much more through the blood of Christ? Some of us are living way below our privileges because we think like we're under the old covenant. Like we got to beat ourselves up for our sins. Christ was beaten for us. The greater and more perfect tabernacle connects with receiving our eternal inheritance. Verse 15, for this reason he's a mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So the greater and more perfect tabernacle is served by a great high priest. It operates by a better covenant. It's assured by Jesus. It points us to the true tabernacle in the heavens. It discontinued old practices that did not help us inwardly. It involves eternal redemption rather than annual atonement. It relates to Christ's blood that does so much more for us. And the greater and more perfect tabernacle connects with receiving our eternal inheritance. I'd like to close by centering in on this one. The greater and more perfect tabernacle points us to the true tabernacle in the heavens. Read this. The Bible's wrapping up. Revelation 21, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, or look, open your eyes. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. In the upper right corner is an artist's rendition of heaven. You know what the dimensions of heaven are? It's also a cube. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. It's 1,500 miles to the third power. That's the cubic measurement of it. That's what we're the citizens of, folks. No wonder we're called the salt of the earth. You know what salt is? Check it out. Cubes. Put them under a microscope. They're cubes. We're citizens of heaven, but on earth we're salt. Our lives should be pictures of what's to come. Now, it, it, in this text, it comes down to the new earth. And you may think, well, what about the holy place, the, the uh, candelabra, the, the, you know, the menorah, and, and the table of showbread, and the altar of incense? Well, if you read the book of Revelation, there's incense going on, there's light, lightning going on, and there's Jesus there who declared himself to be the bread of life, right? He declared himself to be the light of the world. Question is, are we going there? He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end. 
I will give the water of life freely. Can we say free? Free. Freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So folks, everybody's not going to heaven. Now some of us used to be a liar. Some of us used to be sexually immoral. Some of us used to be unbelievers. In fact, all of us were, right? But we didn't stay that way because of the new covenant. He writes his law in our hearts, he cleans us up, and he's making us fit for heaven. If everybody's going to heaven, it won't be long till heaven would become earth too. Not a place for unsubmissive, unbelieving people. And in that city, the Lamb is the light. So the question is, are you going there? Are we going there? Am I going there? So in describing the city in Revelation 21, John continues, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He is the tabernacle. You remember what John 1, 1 says? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14 says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word there dwelt is a word for tabernacle. The Word of God was made flesh and tabernacled among us. A preface to the eternal tabernacling that would happen. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This heady had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So what does that mean? They're always open. What happened in the temple in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus? The gates of the temple were always open. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but might have everlasting life. The door is open, my friends. The light has been turned on. His name is Jesus. Jesus. Yeshua. He speaks Swahili. He's Yesu. And he ever lives to make intercession for you and I to make sure you receive the benefits of his sacrifice. Our part is to call on his name and put our faith in him. Your works will never cut it. You always compare yourself to someone worse than you, but you're doing an insult to the perfection of a holy, pure, peerless God who's so holy the angels say it nine times in describing him. He's holy, holy, holy. Each holy modifying the next. Holy, 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 holy. We do that with the weather. Sometimes it's hot, right? But sometimes it's hot, hot. Well, God is holy, 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 holy. And yet, Christ has made the way to come. Lord, I pray right now for us as your people that we would live in light of this blessed salvation that's been given to us. And those of us that are not enjoying what you've done for us, I pray, Lord, you would give us a hunger to learn from your word. And I pray, Lord, for the unbeliever in this group. I pray, Lord, they'd open their heart to you and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. I want to gain the benefit of this covenant that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Christ is my firm foundation The rock on which I stand When everything around me is shaking I've never been more glad Cause I built my life on Jesus He's never let me down He's faithful in every season So why would he fail now? He won't He won't He won't fail He won't fail He won't He won't He won't fail He won't fail Christ is my firm foundation The rock on which I stand When everything around me is shaking never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus he's never let me down he's faithful through generations so why would he fail now he won't he won't He won't fail He won't fail come boldly to him and we represent him 
So just as he takes our guilt away, we're called to forgive people and not hold their sins against them. Amen? We live in the better covenant, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go get him, tigers. Go get him, lions. <laughs> Go get him, agents of the high priest of God. Amen. God bless you. He won't fail.